Now, church, if you would please open with me to the book of Jude. The book of Jude. (laughs) We're going to be wrapping up our series today, Fighting for Truth in an Age of Deceit. For the last seven weeks, we've been discussing this one chapter in the Bible, and today I want to I land here on these final two verses and close us out uh, before we, we walk into a new series leading up to um, Easter, and then church, once we get past Easter and Passion Week, uh, I will be doing a new series on the seven deadly sins uh, right after Easter, so you're not going to want to miss that, but it's, it's coming just a, a few short weeks away. Now, I think uh, we all like the idea of having a guarantee when it comes to certain things. Would you agree with me? You like to be guaranteed when it comes to certain things. Like, we want to know and be certain that if anything happens to this brand new car that I'm going to buy, that I'm going to get it replaced, or I'm going to have it fixed, or, or if I'm going to buy a brand new refrigerator, or a washer and dryer, I want to have a guarantee that it's going to work, and that it will be replaced if something happens to it. More than that, though, We want to make sure that if something does happen, we are guaranteed, and everyone's favorite thing, is to get your money back, to get your money back, right? Now, we we were in Florida, it was probably my second or third year at, uh, at the church on staff in Florida where we were at for about 10 years. And about our third year, second or third year in uh, to us being the youth pastors, my wife and I being the youth pastors on staff of this church, we had grown exponentially and the church had to move from one building to another building. And God provided uh, a property that was about 10 times the size of what we had and it was a quarter mile up the road. On the same exact road, God provided another property for us to have our services we were at capacity in our building. We were operating on three services that were maxed out in every single service. So God takes us to this new place. We purchased this, this, these two buildings, five acres of property. It was absolutely gorgeous. Our first week in the church building, our worship center, sat about 500 people. And our first Sunday there, we had torrential downpour rain. Torrential rain. And all of a sudden, we saw a small leak in the roof, and it was just drip, 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 and the rain didn't stop. Two days, three days, five days, seven days, the rain continued to pour in our area, Newport Ritchie, Florida, just north of Tampa, and that drip got bigger and bigger and bigger, and we had to call somebody out finally to fix it, give a brand new roof on that whole building. It was an astronomical amount of money. But we had person after company after company come in and tell us they could fix the roof, and everyone had their own guarantees. But this one company were like, we will guarantee that your roof will not leak for 20 or more years. So we as a church were like, well, let's go with this one. They're, they're providing us a guarantee unlike any of the other companies. So we went with this company. They had a a reputation in our area of being good, honest workers. Did a great job. So they come in. About six months into that new roof being on, we started to get a leak. We had to call them back out. They fixed it for free. About two months later, we had another leak in a different place. Call them back out. They fixed it for free. Didn't charge us anything. 
man, we're a year and a half into this brand new roof, and we had called them out seven different times to fix that roof. And I was thinking to myself, man, this is going to be a long 20 years. It's going to be a real long 20 years. But there was the guarantee. There was the guarantee that it would get fixed and the church would not be charged over and over and over again. That's why we went with the company that we did. Pastor, why are you telling us this story about a leaky roof in a church building in Florida where it rains almost every single day, except for maybe a little bit in January? Why are you telling us this? Well, as we close this book out, Jude ends with what I believe to be one of the greatest, if not the greatest guarantee in the Bible. It's not great because there is a guarantee. It's great because who is backing the guarantee? And it is God. So if you would look with me at Jude, and we're going to read the last two verses, 24 and 25, and it says this, Now to him, now to God, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Verse 25, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. Amen, church? Amen. This closing section is really broken up into two separate pieces that is very clear here from the text. It is a theological word that we would call a doxology. A doxology. Both sections have complete and utter impact on how we complete and end this book, Jude. Now, for those of you who may be sitting out there and you've heard the word doxology, but you don't know what it means, it means this. Doxology is an expression of praise unto the Lord. It is an expression of praise unto the Lord. You know, this normally occurs at the end of one of the longer epistles in the Bible. Sometimes it's in the middle, but most often it's to close out a book in the Bible. It's, a, it's an address that is written to the one who is being praised. And it gives us reasons for why they're being praised along with an expression of praise itself, a doxology. Now with that understanding, I want us to look back and I want us to reread these two verses. I want you to see the importance of what Jude says here. He says, now to him, he's speaking about Jesus Christ. Now to him who is able to keep you, you the believer, he's able to keep you from stumbling and he's able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. I don't know about you, but when I read those two verses, it calms my fears and it gives me great hope. It calms my fears and it gives me great hope. I want us to not lose sense of the essence of how Jude closes out this passage. Jude has been stressing for the entire chapter long apostasy, 
Look out for the false prophet. Look out for the false teacher. And at the very end, he begins to encourage the believer, press on, keep going, press into the Lord in the midst of your problem, and guess what? He's able to keep you. He's able to sustain you. He's able to present you blameless before the Father in that day that will one day come. So church, real quick, I want to simply give us a quick overview of what we have learned over the last seven weeks. First, we are told to remember. We were told to remember. We were told to remember the words that were spoken before this writing and the words that were spoken now. You and I should not be shocked or surprised at what we are seeing in our culture by way of apostasy. The way of apostasy, the people who once claimed to be followers of God who are now saying that God is not real. Or those who have crept into the church to teach uh, false doctrines. We should not be surprised. It was prophesied by the prophets of the Bible. It was prophesied by Christ himself that this would happen in the last days. So remember, second, we were told to remain. Remain faithful to God. Do you guys remember, I think it was two weeks ago, that we looked at the passage that said, building ourselves up in our faith is what Jude said. We are to keep ourselves with God. We keep growing. We remain in the place where God is able to sanctify and bless. Remain. He also said we are to reach. We are to reach. We are to show mercy like we talked about last week, and compassion, we reach out to those who are being overtaken, and we ourselves stay aware and alert of the danger. We contend for the, for the truth with compassion. We contend with compassion. And then the last one is rescue. Rescue. Some, and I, I stress some, can and should be used by God to to rescue those who have been overtaken in apostasy. Do you guys remember last week I said that the, that the one who is used by God to rescue is not the position for all believers? If we look at, at Galatians chapter 6, it says those who are godly, those who are godly are to restore with gentleness and meekness the one who has been overtaken in sin. And so this is not for everyone, but that does not mean that we should not pray for those who have fallen away. It is a dangerous thing to attempt to pull somebody away from false doctrine, and doing so must be done with great discernment. Amen, church? The whole theme of the book of Jude has been about contending and staying alert and aware of the signs and symptoms of apostasy. Jude has at times communicated very sternly, but mostly with a tender and a compassionate heart, with a pastor's heart. There's a wealth of encouragement, though, in these last two verses for us. And so the first thing I need us to note this morning in these two verses is that it is God who preserves us. It is God who preserves us. I want you to look back with me at verse number 24. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Or some versions will say with exceeding joy. You know, Jude's doxology reminds us of God's care and of our destiny. You know, Jude's message of warning seen throughout 
uh, throughout this one chapter might have seemed doom and gloom. It might have even brought depression or discouragement to those who read it or even the early Christians in that time. They thought that with so much false teaching and so much immorality happening in the early church, they believed that very few Christians were actually going to get to heaven. And so Jude is here and he's reminding them that the answer lies only in the power of God. The answer lies only in the power of God. He is able to keep you, church. And I want to just take a a moment um, and I want to address two things before I dive in too far. First and foremost, um, I'm going to be talking about today this very thought of God keeping you. Now, we just spent seven weeks looking at apostasy, uh, at apostasy about people who said they once believed and are now walking away from the Lord. And so you're like, pastor, you may be sitting out here like, pastor, how is it that God can keep you and yet somebody could still fall away? Well, because we still have a choice. God never infringes upon your will. He will make you willing, but he will never infringe. He will never force you to keep doing what you should be doing. That's the first thing. The second is, church, you and I are not able to keep ourselves. Amen? You and I are not able to keep ourselves. I want you to think about it like this. If you were to go mountain climbing, the beginning hiker always attaches himself to the expert so that if he loses his footing, he will not stumble and fall to his death. And so it is in the same manner in Christianity, in a relationship with the Lord. If we keep connected to God, we cannot fall to our own death spiritually. If we keep connected to God. Why? Because God keeps us safe. By comparing passages of scripture all throughout the Bible, we find out who truly is responsible for our safekeeping. Jude started out in the beginning of this one chapter addressing those who were preserved by Christ or in Christ. He then begins to exhort the Christian and he tells them, avoid dangerous men and women and and keep yourselves in the love of God. But then he concludes with the recognition and ultimately saying, God is the one who keeps you and I from stumbling and falling. It is the power of God in you. If we were to go to the works of Paul, the Pauline epistles is what we would call them. If we were to go to those works of Paul, the book of Philippians is one of my favorite. In fact, my life verse is found in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says this. One, One portion of scripture that we often quote, but we only quote a portion of it and never the rest. How many of you know or have heard the verse, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Yeah, a lot of you are nodding like, yep, I've heard that verse right. But we always leave out the second half of that verse. Yes, we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But that verse goes on to say, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It is God who works in you and I. Keeping us spiritually safe is God's work for the believer. But you can always tell the people that he is working in. Why? Because they're working also. 
because they're responding to the work of God in their life. Listen, church, I I just want to be real frank with you this morning. God does not call any of us simply to let the, the Christian life happen to us. He doesn't call us to just stand here as if, like I've said in the past, like the gifts of the the Holy Spirit are going to come and and fall upon you. Love, joy, peace, patience. It's just going to fall upon you like your gift package from Amazon because you ordered it online. We live in a culture that is, is so much consumed with a microwave mentality. We want it in 30 seconds and then it's ours. We want it right now because we said it, because we want it, because we thought about it. And that's not how this life works. Salvation happens in an instance, but sanctification occurs over the remainder of our life until the Lord has called you home, church. And so we have to be under the understanding that when we pick up the word of God, it's going to take you longer than 24 hours to be changed. It's going to take you longer than one week to start displaying the fruit of the Spirit. Why? Because it takes the power of God working in and through you, and it takes your partnership and your cooperation with Lord in order to be sanctified in this life. But it is the power of God in you. It is not you. It is not you. There is a partnership with the Holy Spirit in this life. And God is faithful. Amen, church? And because of the faithfulness of God, you and I will not have to slink in shame into the presence of God. We won't. We will be presented before God with great or exceeding joy. Man, if if that does not get you pumped up about your relationship with the Lord, then I don't know what will. I used to have a pastor when I was a child that used to say, if that don't light your fire, your wood's wet. And every time he would say it, I would get so frustrated. I'm like, why do you use, and it occurred to me when I was late in my teen, my teen years when the Lord got a hold of me at a summer camp, and I'm like, it clicked, the light bulb came, if, if that does not light your fire, your wood is wet. Man. If you don't get jacked up about the truths of God's word and the promises that we know the Lord will keep in the day that will come, then man, I would reevaluate my relationship with God. I would reevaluate why. Because one day we will stand in the presence of our creator and it says with exceeding or great joy we will be in his presence. You know, there's an old hymn, an old hymn called Rock of Ages. And we used to sing this song when I was a child, and it says that nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Simply to the cross I cling. We, you, me, believer in here, we rely completely on God to keep us saved. It was 1 Peter who said this, to an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled, and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last times. You want to know what's interesting about this portion of Scripture? It's interesting that Peter does not really describe what our inheritance is. He doesn't. He tells us what it is not, as all he does. What our inheritance actually is, is something far too great for him to even attempt to put into words. It's something that cannot perish. 
It's something that does not spoil. It's something that does not fade away. If you've studied the Old Testament in any way, it is the inheritance that was communicated to Aaron in the book of Numbers chapter 18 that says that we have no inheritance of the land, but God is our inheritance. But God, we can't experience, church, the inheritance spoken about in Scripture unless we are born again. Unless we are born again. You know, the unregenerate man does not have the capacity to enjoy the inheritance of God because he's not a part of God's family. It it would be like rewarding a blind man by showing him the most beautiful sunset or taking him to an art museum. He wouldn't be able to grasp it. He wouldn't be able to understand it. And so I want to just take a little side note here for a moment. When you and I share the gospel with people, when you and I share the gospel with a lost and hurting people who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, we should not just share with them the agonies of a life in hell apart from Christ. We should share with them the glory of heaven that they would miss. We should share with them the glory of heaven that they would miss. You know, the promise of that inheritance for you and I, it's certain because we are kept by the power of God. It enables us to endure in this life through faith until Jesus Christ does come. The person in this life who is kept is a person that abides, that abides in a continuing relationship of faith with God. If I could just challenge you with this one thing uh, before we go any further, before you go home and you turn on your TV, before you go home and you play a video game or get on your phone or you get on social media, go to Sunday Social, have lunch, and when you get home, I challenge you to read John chapter 15. John chapter 15. You want to know anything about what it means to abide in Christ? Then go back to the scripture and look at what Jesus says about the vineyard and the branches being connected and what happens to those who do not abide in him. It says those who abide produce fruit and more fruit and much fruit. Go back. I would challenge you to read that chapter today. But church, it is all a work of God. We gave our life to God and God guarantees that life as long as we are connected to him. You and I have no capacity whatsoever to save ourselves or to keep ourselves. Nothing. And the reality of that truth that God keeps us, it should really remove any doubt or fear And it should allow us to live a life of freedom and righteousness. We should live in light of salvation and we should live with confidence that we are his and he keeps us. I've been doing uh, biblical counseling for close to nine years now. I'm a certified biblical counselor and one of the things that I often see in counseling, um, I will hear people 
uh, who will come in, they'll sit down, and I'll ask a bunch of questions of that individual. I want to hear uh, their salvation story, but oftentimes I will hear from people in counseling that uh, this, this one thought, um, I'm still struggling with fill in the blank. Sometimes it's a lot of blanks, but I, I'm struggling with this, or I'm struggling with this, or or, you know, I feel like my identity is constantly found in this, or I'm struggling in my marriage, or I'm struggling with parenting my kids, whatever the topic may be, oftentimes it is found that those people are not walking in the forgiveness in which they have received by the grace of God through salvation. Oftentimes those people are still laser and super focused on the issue that used to be of the old life that they are now living in what we would call a state of self-condemnation. A state in which says, I am still this way. I still am an adulterer. I still am an alcoholic. I still am a drug addict. But the thing is, is that once we receive salvation... When we pray and say, Lord, please rescue me. Please get me out of this pit in which I am living in this life. Guess what, church? The moment that we, we claim Christ as Lord and Savior, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. And that forgiveness means that you no longer have to live in the way that you used to live. You now have a choice to do what is right. Why? Because the Holy Spirit now indwells in you because you have prayed and accepted the gift of salvation that is given by the shed blood of our Lord and Savior. And so if you're, I don't, I don't, I don't even know why, but if you are in here today, if you are in here today and you're still struggling in this life with whatever it, it may be, please know Please know, as a believer, you've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. You've been forgiven and you can walk in that forgiveness as a new creation. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5. The old has passed away and all things have become new because of Jesus Christ. And I don't have time to get into this church, but there is no doctrine in the Bible that says you have to forgive yourself. You can't. You can't forgive yourself. God can forgive you. And any teacher and any person who labels himself as a pastor that tells you you need to forgive yourself, that is an utter lie. That is not of God. You can't forgive yourself. God can. And you need to walk in the forgiveness that's been already given to you, church. You've been forgiven, so walk in it. Don't condemn yourself any longer. It's okay. This is the life in which God has called you to. He's the one that makes you whole. He's the one who sanctifies you. It is his truth that changes you. Not you, not somebody else. It's his forgiveness, his love, his grace, his mercy, his joy, his peace that makes you different. Amen? Charles Spurgeon said that no man can keep himself because he will surely fail. He said, if left to ourselves, we would end up in hell. Only Jesus can save and keep you. Only Jesus. And so one day, church, one day, you and I will, because of God keeping us, will be presented before our maker. One day, we will stand before him. And the thing is, we didn't do it. 
We didn't make it happen. We won't stand before God singing, I did it my way. We'll be standing before God because of the graciousness of our Lord and Savior. And so church, the second thing I want us to see this morning is that we will be presented before him. We will be presented before him. Now please understand that if God is keeping us, it's because he's promised to do so. Peter again reminds us that God is not slack concerning his promises. God is always patient with us. Amen, church? Who is glad for the long-suffering nature of our Lord and Savior? God will perform the promise of absolute perfection one day. I love what the author John wrote in the book of Revelation. One day there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering. All the former things will be passed away. And it says that he, he, speaking of God, who sat upon the throne, said, behold, all things are becoming new. Man, I don't know about you, but I'm ready for him to say it is finished again. I'm ready. I'm ready for the day where we will stand before God because Jesus made it possible. God treated his son on the cross as if he lived our life so he can treat us as if we lived Jesus's. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become or be made the righteousness of God in You know, when Paul wrote that, the idea of any man being sinless was foreign to the Jewish people's thinking. It was foreign. And despite that, no one challenged Jesus' claim when he said he was sinless. They challenged where he got his power. They challenged that he was the Messiah. But they never one time challenged the fact that he was sinless. Never one time is it recorded in Scripture that he was ever challenged. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul carefully chooses these words. If you notice, and if you would, Tim, just leave that verse up there for me. If you notice in that verse on the screens, Paul did not say that Jesus was made to be a sinner. Because Jesus never became a sinner. But he did become sin. For us, he became sin for us. Even his becoming sin was a righteous act of love, not an act of sin. Jesus was not a sinner, not even on the cross was Jesus a sinner. But on the cross, God looked at his son and treated him as if he were a sinner. Yet all the while, sin was outside of Jesus, never inside, and it was not a part of his nature like it is ours. It was a work of God. It was a work of God. And the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were in perfect cooperation in the work on the cross. Jesus took our sin and he gave us his righteousness. He gave it to us. It's a tremendous exchange if you really think about it. All prompted by love and grace and mercy and justice. Tremendous. For those of you who didn't get an opportunity to walk through our Romans Bible study at the end of last year, 
I would challenge you to go back and listen to it on the church website. Because what this is talking about here, what we're addressing, is what we would call justification. And the book of Romans covers justification in great lengths and great depths for us to understand it. But a life that has been justified by Christ is what makes us worthy to come before the presence of God. And we will stand before God one day blameless and faultless and holy all because of Christ. All because of Christ. We will be presented faultless because of forgiving and a faithful God. Do you notice the words in the text? Great joy or exceeding joy at the end of 24. The idea that Jude was trying to communicate here was there will be so much joy that we will be unable to contain ourselves. I mean, think of the scene if you can with me. Think of the scene of God the Father being filled with joy over us coming into His presence in a place of perfection. You know, one of the reasons we will have so much joy is because we will finally be, ha- we will finally be able and have the ability to fellowship the way God intended fellowship to be. God is waiting waiting with great anticipation to to receive those that he has redeemed, and we will be able to rejoice together with exceeding or great joy. And I believe that that thought of of being able to uh, worship God with great joy or exceeding joy is really a thought that not, not many can fathom, if we can fathom at all. And the unfathomable nature of the fact that we will have exceeding joy standing faultless before our Creator really should lead us to one action. It should lead us to one thing, worship. It should lead us to get down on our hands and knees and worship God. And so the third thing and final thing I want you to see this morning is there should be an expression of praise. There should be an expression of praise. The doxology of Jude's letter closes out and he describes the one true king with four words. Glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. That word glory is the sum total of all that God is and does. Everything about God is glorious. His majesty is the word greatness or magnificence. And only God is you. These words are only used to describe God and his character. Next is dominion. It is God's sovereignty, his righteous rule. The word means strength and might with the idea of complete and utter control. And then authority or in some versions power. It means that God is in charge. That God uses his power righteously. And as believers, you and I are to yield to that authority in this life. You know, the the more we are caught up and captivated by how great God is and and how much of a Savior He is, the less we will want to go back to our old life. But here's the thing, church. Christian, friend in this place this morning, the more you and I seek to know God, the greater our faithfulness will become. 
the more you and I seek to grow and, and, and see the face of God, the deeper our knowledge and wisdom of the word will become. The more you and I surrender to the truths of God's word, the sweeter our fellowship with him becomes. And so the, the challenge of Jude has been for the last eight weeks to contend for the faith. You and I must prevent truth from decaying in our lives. We must make it our reality. And when we do, when we make that a reality, four things occur. And we talked about them at the very beginning of today. The, the, the recall, so to speak, of what we have learned. We make this our reality by remembering. We remember first. Don't forget what you've been taught, church. We make it our reality by remaining faithful to God. Stay faithful to the scriptures. Exercise discernment. I said this last week that the one area in which the church is lacking and needs to grow is discernment. Discernment. And so exercise discernment, church. Exercise. Check your passion moment by moment in this life for God. Is it continual? Is my passion for the things of God continual? Because if it's not, then I need to hit the brakes real hard and realign myself with truth. Man, man, oh man, what the church needs now, alongside coupled with discernment, is believers who are willing to take a firm stand against false teaching. A firm stand, church. I'm not saying that we browbeat people with the word of God, but we know what we believe and why we believe it, and we live it out in this life. If you do not stand for something, you will fall for anything. You will fall for anything. And last church, we need to make this a reality by reaching and rescuing we have to spot those who bring disharmony into the fellowship. And we're not just talking about fellowship here within these four walls. I'm talking about fellowship in the body of, of Christ. The, the big capital C church. And then seek to help those who have fallen away. Church, you and I must live in light of the fact that we will one day stand before God faultless. There's a song that I have asked our worship team to put together for closing, and I'll invite them here in just a moment. The song that we're going to sing here in just a moment says, And when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Church, in this life, the only way that you will stand faultless before God is if you have trusted Christ as your Savior. That's it. If you are a part of the family of God, and you don't have to wait. You don't. You could be in this room right now and thinking to yourself, I don't know that I will stand faultless before God. 
And guess what? Today you can have your sins forgiven. Today you can receive the gift of salvation through the shed blood of Jesus. It doesn't have to wait. I, I don't have to pull you up onto the stage and embarrass you in order for you to receive salvation. It's not some 10 words that you pray on the back of somebody's salvation card. This is you crying out to the Lord and saying, I need you to rescue and save me because I'm a sinner and I want to be in eternity with my maker. I want to make you the Lord of my life. I don't want to live the way that I used to live. I don't want to be that person anymore. There's no, there's no special words that you pray to get into heaven. But I want to give an opportunity right now for that to happen. Before we even sing Cornerstone, before we even cry out to God in, in song at the end, and so I'm going to ask everyone if they would bow their heads and if they would close their eyes, and I would ask if you would please, please be respectful of the people around you. In an attitude of prayer, maybe you're in here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior. Maybe you are in here this morning and you want to be rescued by God. Maybe you don't know where else to go. Maybe you've been living a life that has led to despair and depression. Maybe pain in some way. Your marriage isn't working. Parenting your kids is hard. Your job is not working out. And you've tried it all. You've looked everywhere to fill the God-sized hole in your life, and it continues to get worse. If that's you in this place, you can sit right in the seat that you're sitting, and you can cry out to God. You can ask God to save you, to rescue you. Right here, right now, admit that you are a, senior, a sinner and, and that you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that we believe in our heart, we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord. And it says that when we call on the name of the Lord, we shall be saved. And so if you have not cried out to the Lord, you have an opportunity right now to say, I believe and I, I will confess with my mouth, Lord. And maybe you're in here and you're like, Pastor, I am a believer, I know I'm going to heaven, but I have not been living my life in light of what Christ has done for me. Well, now is an opportunity for you to recommit to say, Lord, I don't want to live this way any longer. I want to follow after you. I want to remember the truths. I want to remain faithful. And I want to reach and rescue people who have gone astray or who do not know you. And if you're in here and you're like, Pastor, I feel like my relationship with the Lord is great. That's awesome. So who are you bringing along with you? Now as the worship team comes, I'm going to ask you to stay in an attitude of prayer. If you're in here today and you cried out to the Lord for salvation, I'm going to ask you to please keep your eyes closed and your heads bowed. But if you're in here and you cried out to the Lord for salvation, would you just make eye contact with me? I'm not going to call you out. I just want to know so I can rejoice with you and I can pray with you and for you. If, if that was you, if you cried out for salvation, will you just look at me? Nobody else is looking around. I don't want to embarrass anybody. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. Anybody else? Anybody else as the worship team comes?